Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, 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 and welcome to the first week of May and Rossafari Zoo News. So we start off this week with some pretty exciting news. Uh, I, I recently got two new pairs of New Balance sneakers. One is blue and kind of funky looking. The other one is gray and a little more uh, muted, but still nice. And I, I picked them up at DSW on... S oh, I'm sorry, y'all. I thought this said Rasafari Shoe News. Turns out it says Zoo News. My bad, my bad. <laughs> yes, I know I'm a goober. And yes, I really did get those two new pairs of sneakers, but that's not what you are here for. So a uh, quick reminder, at Rasafari on Instagram and Facebook, at Rossafari Pod on TikTok, rossafari.com. And uh, you can email me, especially if you see any cool zoo news stories, rossafaripod at gmail.com. So without further ado, one, two, three, four. Ow, oh, there's a funky monkey, tree kangaroo, or a binturong. It's zoo news, yeah. We start this week's Zoo News with news pertaining to COVID-19. I know y'all are shocked. The COVID-19 vaccine that has been developed for animals has been tested more and seems to be good to go. Wide distribution of the vaccine to species that are the most susceptible at zoos is expected to start in late summer or early fall. This is obviously not the same vaccines that are being used for humans, but it is very similar in a lot of ways, including the fact that it is a two-dose regimen. Based on the testing done so far, it is believed that this vaccination will work across multiple species, including the big cats and primates, which are the most likely to catch it. And speaking of that pesky coronavirus, zoos are now figuring out what to do in light of new CDC guidelines. The CDC recently updated its guidelines to state that fully vaccinated individuals, when outdoors and able to socially distance, no longer need to wear a mask. While this is great news for anyone who likes being outdoors, including myself, it does create some interesting questions and problems for zoos. For instance, most zoos are able to have enough space to socially distance effectively, but not necessarily at the animal enclosures. So right now, every zoo is trying to figure out exactly how to deal with these new recommendations and what should be applied at their institution. This is, of course, complicated by the fact that masks have become politicized and zoos don't want to alienate half of their potential clientele, especially at a time when revenues are still down thanks to the pandemic. 
Many zoos have started announcing their updated plans already on social media, and regardless of whether they are more cautious or more mask-free, they are facing backlash on social media from the people who disagree with said policies. What a time to be alive. So, have you heard of AMZAP yet? AMZAP is the Association of Minority Zoo and Aquarium Professionals. It is a network of professionals currently working in exotic animal care and conservation disciplines focused on increasing minority representation throughout the zoo industry. And even though the organization has existed for a couple of years now, it is really just starting to hit its stride. As a matter of fact, you're going to be hearing a lot more about them on Tuesday as I bring you an interview with two steering committee members of AMZAP. The reason they are making the news episode before their episode next week, though, is that because in the last week, both the AZA and the ZAA have officially signed on as support organizations for AMZAP. I'm already so proud of the amazing zoos that have signed on to work with this organization, including Pittsburgh, Dallas, Zoo Atlanta, Cincinnati, Fort Worth, Indianapolis, Brandywine, Woodland Park, Maryland, Tampa, San Antonio, Roger Williams Park Zoo, and even Zoo America in Hershey. Changing an industry is always hard, but having the AZA and the ZAA on board is only going to make AMZAP's mission that much easier to fulfill. Congratulations to all involved. And hey, if you work at a zoo that isn't supporting AMZAP yet, talk to somebody, get the word out there, share the episode that I'm going to drop on Tuesday, and uh, let's get more zoos involved. This is an exciting time for this organization. And now we go from a story about inclusivity to, well, not that. Many staff members at the Audubon Nature Institute Zoo and Audubon Aquarium of the Americas in New Orleans are very upset about an event happening next week at the zoo called Blue at the Zoo. And yes, it is exactly what it sounds like. In this case, a five-day event honoring police by, amongst other things, giving a discount to anyone who wears blue to the zoo or aquarium to get in in order to honor said police. This has especially irritated keepers because less than one year ago, the Audubon Nature Institute put out a statement supporting BLM, Black Lives Matter, and saying that they stand with black people for the protection and safety of them from police violence. Not only was the Keeper staff not made aware of the event, but the Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Board was not consulted before this event was created. In a statement announcing Blue at the Zoo, Ron Foreman, president and CEO of the Audubon Nature Institute, said, We wanted to show our thanks and appreciation for the hardworking people who protect and serve our community. We are looking forward to welcoming guests who share our gratitude for the NOPD and together spark individual action that benefits the natural world. Unfortunately, this is being seen as rather tone deaf, especially given the uh, lack of telling the keeper staff and the committee mentioned before about it. Hashtag resign Ron Foreman has been popping up all over social media, and many keepers have issued public statements stating that they are opposed to the event. Blew at the Zoo should be canceled, or at the very least renamed They Blew It at the Zoo. Though, to be fair, that doesn't rhyme. 
And while we're hanging out on the internet, well, some icky stuff happened on the internet this week that is relevant to zoos and zookeeping. It all started with a Reddit thread asking zookeepers to share their deepest and darkest secrets about working at a zoo. Of course, the zookeeping community did not take the bait and responded mostly with hilarious and gross stories, things that would make perfect Rossafari poop stories. Poop story! And early on, the press from the thread was basically about that. BuzzFeed put out an article that was, again, kind of just like a bunch of Rossafari poop stories. Poop story! But of course, because it's the internet and we can't have nice things, the thread took a turn for the worse. Now, keep in mind, Reddit is anonymous, and nothing on there can actually be verified. While most keepers continued to tell funny and, you know, lighthearted nice stories, some people, oftentimes claiming to be volunteers maybe from 20 or 30 years ago, started coming in with their really bad stories. These stories can not only not be verified, but also in some cases just read as really, really false, or the weird kind of anthropomorphism that we all hate so very much, at least when we're not the ones doing it. But of course, press has run with those. Bored Panda recently put up an article stating just all of the worst, quote, insider information stories from the thread. This is basically a dream scenario for anyone in the anti-zoo community. So, of course, it frustrates the hell out of me and anyone who actually works at zoos and knows the amazing care that goes into them. I'm just so sad that this is what media has become right now. An obviously baiting thread on an anonymous website gets anonymous, non-verifiable posts that then get turned into other articles that people will read without that context and just look at it and say, oh yeah, see, zoos suck. Man, that's just not right. I wish I could propose an easy and obvious solution to this problem, but I can't. I, I don't know how to fix media right now. <laughs> but uh, what I will tell you is that if you are a fan of zoos, and again, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not, what the heck are you doing here? It's time to really start to equip yourself. Listen to the things that are said by the amazing people on this podcast every week. Keep up with your zoo news, both here and online, and really equip yourself with some facts because the anti-zoo crowd is loud and uh, kind of ridiculous when they start using this kind of thing. Hopefully real facts can at least help mitigate some of that damage. And that last sentence right there is why people constantly tell me that I'm an optimist, despite the fact that I swear I'm a realist. Oh, also, do me a favor, don't go look for the article. It's really frustrating, and we don't want to give them more clicks. Just trust that it's there, and it is not verified, and uh, they didn't bother looking into whether they were accredited zoos or not, because, again, it's all not verified and can easily be made up. So, uh, yeah, just leave that one alone for me, okay? Thanks. And now, from an article that bugged me to an article about bugs, let's go to cicadas. I'm sure you have all heard, but the Brudex cicadas are coming this year. This is the brood of cicadas that hides for 16 years and then on the 17th year comes to the surface to breed and do it all over again. One of the areas where these cicadas will be the most prevalent is Washington, D.C., which begets the question, what do cicadas mean for zoos? Well, for starters, there are going to be a lot more bonus animals around, but uh, that's not really the newsworthy part. 
The interesting thing is that it's going to mean there are a lot more insects around for animals that are insectivores, whether it's bears or uh, anteaters, maned wolves, otters. A lot of animals enjoy eating insects, and they're about to have a buffet presented to them. Mike Meslanka, the head of nutrition science at the National Zoo, says that the cicadas are perfectly safe for the animals to eat, but because animals are kept on strict diets, uh, the nutrition staff is going to have to try to limit their consumption or lower their diet in other ways to make up for the increase in protein. As a matter of fact, the zoo is actually planning on capturing and freezing many cicadas, both to study them further and also to use as enrichment down the line for the zoo animals. So when you are hearing those cicadas screaming all summer, just think, at least they're making some panda bears, sloth bears, and Asian small-clawed otters happy. Earlier this week, the Cincinnati Zoo celebrated the 17th birthdays of Chance and Bravo, two of their cheetahs. The average lifespan of a cheetah is 10 to 12 years, and it is currently believed that these two 17-year-old cheetahs are the oldest in the world. And speaking of old animals, unfortunately, we end Zoo News this week with a sad story. Murphy, the 20-year-old giraffe at the Lehigh Valley Zoo, has been humanely euthanized because he was not responding properly to treatments for diseases that come along with the advanced age of a giraffe. Y'all, it was only a few weeks ago that I was at the Lehigh Valley Zoo doing an interview and getting a tour, and I got to hang out with Murphy. Obviously, it was protected contact, but uh, Murphy was very cool, very inquisitive, and uh, he was just one of those animals that could look right into your soul. One of those instant connection animals. We talk about that a lot on the podcast, and I've got to tell you, I have met and fed a ton of giraffes, but none ever reached me quite like Murphy did. I am devastated to hear of his passing, and I send my love and warmest regards to everyone at the Lehigh Valley Zoo. Murphy was an incredible ambassador for his species, and the outpouring of love when Lehigh Valley announced this was amazing to see. It seemed like Murphy isn't just one of those animals that I connected with, but he really connected with everyone who got to spend some time with him, whether it was taking care of him, just seeing him, or even partaking in a giraffe feeding. Murphy will truly be missed. And now... Conservation! Conservation! News time! Oh yeah! Party on, zoos! Party on, conservation! We're going to start our conservation news this week with a quick update from last week and the story about turtle dogs. Actually, two updates. First of all, I'm very disappointed that none of my artist fans sent me any artwork depicting my new favorite superhero that I made up, Turtle Dog. Eh, that's alright, I love y'all anyway. The actual update, however, is that the dogs in question are Boykin Spaniels. I thought this was really interesting. Boykin Spaniels are medium-sized dogs and are the official state dog of South Carolina. Boykin Spaniels were first bred in South Carolina and were known to be good turkey and duck hunting dogs because of their soft mouths. In fact, they were so good at it 
that through selective breeding, Boykin Spaniels now have some of the softest mouths of all dogs, which is also what make them perfect for turtle dogging. Perhaps that's not newsworthy, but it's pretty darn neat, so I thought I would throw it on in here. Manatees are dying at an unprecedented rate in Florida right now, which is causing the situation to be investigated. In the first three months of 2021, 613 manatees have died. That is more than three times the normal amount, and, for some perspective, in 2020, 637 manatees died in the entire year. The highest recorded number of manatee deaths in a single year happened in 2013 when 830 manatees died. Obviously, 2021 can blow past that record if things continue as they are. In fact, the numbers are so high, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association has declared the deaths to be a, quote, marine mammal unusual mortality event, which has triggered an investigation into the issue. So far, they are saying that the mass die-off of seagrass on the eastern coast is definitely a contributing factor, but there have been other issues as well, and the investigation is still ongoing. There are four manatee hospitals in the state, including the one at Zoo Tampa, and all of them are at or near capacity. In fact, the numbers are so bad that additional manatees have had to be sent to the manatee rehab centers at the Columbus Zoo and Cincinnati Zoo. Even with all of this help, there is simply not enough room to care for the manatees that need it right now. Here's hoping that conservationists are able to swoop in and figure out the problem before this species goes extinct. Polar bears have incredibly thick fur, which helps them survive in their incredibly cold environment, but this creates a problem for conservationists. Namely, that it is very hard to get an unobtrusive tracker on a polar bear without it falling off because it's hard to get it embedded in the fur. The company 3M recently created four different prototypes known as Burr on Fur that try to stick to the polar bears like burrs do, and they are being tested both in the wild and at certain zoos. So far, only one of the three tested devices has panned out as pretty effective, and the fourth one has yet to be tested, but the one that has been successful has been very successful sending tracking information back to the people and not falling off the bear. Hopefully, Polar Bears International will be able to use the devices that are successful in the testing to track wild polar bears, helping keep track of the population while also gaining an even better understanding of the natural history of this animal. I love this story not only because it is hopefully going to help conserve polar bears, but also because it yet again illustrates the amazing work being done at zoos. The zoos that are participating in the Polar Bears International Challenge to try out these different 3M tracking devices are able to give really great information on not only the effectiveness of the trackers in the fur, but also are able to observe their bears and see if they seem bothered by them. Yet another way that zoo animals are being great ambassadors for their species. Now, if you've listened to any episodes of Rasafari Around the World, then you have heard of WAZA, the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. 
You've also heard that palm oil is a real problem in the conservation world, with non-sustainable sources being a major problem killing a lot of the habitat that the most endangered species on our planet inhabit, including especially orangutans, not orangutans, you'll remember, and uh, other primates. Well, Waza is here to help, especially if you work in the zoo field. They've launched a new website called wazapalmoil.org. This is an aggregate website that is pulling together sustainable palm oil resources for zoos and aquariums, trying to help zoos and aquariums on their sustainable palm oil journeys. Again, that website, if you want to check it out, and you should, there are a lot of great resources there, is wazapalmoil.org. And also remember that there is a free app that you can download, at least for iPhones. I don't have an Android, so I'm not sure if it's there, by the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo that will help you with your own personal palm oil choices. You can just scan a barcode and make sure that you're using sustainably sourced palm oil. And also speaking of new news about topics we've addressed on the podcast, you may remember all the way back in episode 56, The Other Batman with Jordi Seegers of the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative, that we talked about white nose syndrome and how it is affecting bats in Canada. Well, new research in the United States has shown that white-nose syndrome has become a huge problem in this country as well, and one of the biggest hotbeds is actually my home state of Pennsylvania. The study has shown that there is a die-off nationally of more than 90% of the bat species in question in less than 10 years. The study also shows that white-nose syndrome is much more prevalent around the country and Canada than had been previously expected. It has currently spread to 35 states and 7 Canadian provinces. And along with wanting to save bat species because, well, this would be a pretty crappy conservation podcast if I wasn't trying to help people be aware and save species— It's also important because bats eat insects, and we don't actually know what the impact of these extra couple hundred million insects that aren't being eaten in places like western Pennsylvania right now is going to have. It can lead to increased disease spread. It can lead to extra crop damage. Bats are important, y'all. Hopefully, this new study showing the severity of this issue brings even more funding and research to trying to find a cure for white-nose syndrome quickly. We already know that our buddy Yordi is working on it up in Canada. Here's hoping that the U.S. can do even more work to help. Now, did you know that chickens are endangered? Okay, okay, I'm not talking about the stuff that you can find on grocery store shelves all around the country. But actually, one of the most endangered bird species in North America is the Atwater's prairie chicken. A hundred years ago, you could find these incredibly beautiful birds wandering all around Texas and Louisiana with a population thought to be over a million individuals. A combination of problems over the last hundred years, including obviously human involvement, but also crazy weather things happening and also a big problem with red ants, has led the population to almost go completely extinct. In 2018, the estimated wild population of Atwater's prairie chickens was... 12. Not a great number, y'all. Of course, conservationists and zoos and aquariums stepped in to help. And now the latest count has been completed and there are believed to be 178 birds living in the wild, plus many captive populations at places such as Fossil Rim Wildlife Center. 
which you will be hearing more from on an upcoming episode of the podcast when we delve more deeply into this very topic. While the population numbers are still very low, this increase is incredible, and the fact that there are so many more birds in captivity and active breeding programs is really encouraging. The story of the Atwater's Prairie Chicken has been one of amazing successes and amazing setbacks, but awesome institutions such as Fossil Rim, the Atwater Prairie Chicken Refuge, the Abilene Zoo, the Caldwell Zoo, the San Antonio Zoo, the Houston Zoo, and SeaWorld have all combined to pull these birds back from the brink of extinction. They're not out of the woods yet. Well, actually, they're not out of the prairie yet, but um, things are looking up for the Atwater's Prairie Chicken, and I cannot wait to really delve into this topic on a future episode with y'all. The University of Saskatchewan has teamed up with the Toronto Zoo to attempt to help the population of wood bison continue to grow. The wood bison is a subspecies of the North American bison that tends to be found in northern regions, including Alaska, Northwest Territories, British Columbia, Yukon, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. They are currently listed as threatened on the IUCN Red List of Species. First, the team from USASC and the Toronto Zoo were able to produce wood bison calves using in vitro fertilization for the first time. Then, they became the first research team to produce bison calves from frozen in vitro embryos produced from immature eggs that were collected from live bison. Now, the team is using sex-sorted sperm to take on a new challenge facing the population. What does that mean? Well, you see, sperm cells are what actually determine the sex of the offspring. And geneticists are able to look at the sperm that is collected and figure out which individual sperm cells will produce female offspring. Using these techniques, scientists are able to control the population gender split of captive herds. Why does this matter? Well, the gestation period of a bison is about nine and a half months, so similar to human, and also like humans, they produce one and occasionally two offspring, but normally just one. However, they are not a monogamous species, and as such, while each bison female can only produce one offspring each year, the males can easily breed with 20 to 30 females per year. Now, obviously, they still need to control for genetics and all kinds of important stuff, but this is a huge deal because you can radically shape the amount of breeding happening in a herd in one to two generations by using sex-sorted sperm. <laughs> Try saying that phrase five times fast. Out loud. In public. I dare you. Oh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. And now... In other news. My other news segment this week is actually my favorite, which is, is rare, but there are just two really goofy stories that I love that I wanted to share with you. The first one is from David Plotz, host of Slate's Political Gabfest and owner of CityCast, a new news podcasting service that is pretty cool. He recently unearthed an old postcard from Denver that had a great little story on it. Did you know that Denver once had a streetcar that was pulled up a hill by a horse? Okay, not incredibly rare, but here's the rare part. At the top of the hill, the people would get off, 
people would load onto the car, and on the back of the car, the horse would step on. And he would actually ride the car back down to the base of the hill, where he would then get off and start to pull the streetcar back up the hill again. I don't know why filmmakers went with the streetcar named Desire when they could have done this one instead. I think that would have been a much better film, y'all. And then here's a fun story for my bird nerds out there. Two scientists in Germany set out to try to figure out, using actual evidence, what makes for the best bird photo. The study found that the weirder the bird looks, the more likes it got. People like really strange birds, y'all. And it led to the conclusion that the most Instagrammable bird is the tawny frogmouth. Now, I've posted some tawnies, and they're pretty cool. If you don't know what we're talking about, they are a nocturnal bird that many people tend to think is an owl. Uh, they have super long wings, super short legs, a hooked beak, and front-facing eyes, which is, you know, not super common in birds. And um, I think they're adorable, but they are kind of weird-looking, not gonna lie. So, hey, for all of you people who think that you're too weird-looking to ever be an Instagram influencer or anything like that, just remember, in the bird world, you would be the Kardashians and the Jenners. There are not a lot of animal holidays this week, but a quick reminder that it is Be Kind to Animals Month, Chip Your Pet Month, Gardening for Wildlife Month, International Respect for Chickens Month, especially at Waters Prairie Chickens, right, y'all? National Duckling Month and National Pet Month. Also worth mentioning, the biggest week in American birding is from May 6th to May 10th, so get out and bird, y'all. As far as individual days, all I've got is two things falling on May 8th this week, International Migratory Bird Day and National Animal Disaster Preparedness Day. And those are your animal holidays for the week. All right, and that does it. That is your Rasafari Zoo news for this week. Uh, super big thanks to Dr. Natalie Taco, Danny Poirier Larson, and Dr. Holly at Fossil Rim for providing me with some of the stories that showed up here this week. Remember, y'all, if you hear about or see a really cool news or conservation story that might fit this podcast, go ahead and send it to me at rasafaripod at gmail.com or tag me in it on Instagram or Facebook at rasafari. I'll be back on Tuesday with another interview episode. All right, here come those Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.